it's like min height somehow flips it into some special mode of rendering or something. I, I don't know. It's really, some of it just makes no sense. It's like just some esoteric browser logic that you just have to do because that's how it works. Yep. See, it sounded easy. Sure wasn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off by one errors, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 93. And on today's show, we're going to talk about things that sound like they should be easy, but actually aren't. Like, you know, centering stuff vertically. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as usual, we'll start with our triumphs and fails. I guess it's my turn to go first. So I'm going to go with a continued fail from last week. And I'm just going to say brain is still mush. I don't have a whole lot of excuses because I didn't actually do a ton of policy reading and writing since last week. I guess we, I would say we've had like one incident in the last week and then a bunch of like other just sort of urgent and important work where it's like, okay, well, I'll put aside my thing and work on that. But I, I did do some policy stuff this afternoon and it's like instantly return to, to mush. This is for your sock too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Re- yeah. Reading and writing policies. Like today I did our information security policy, which is separate from our incident response policy. And like just a bunch of, you know, these things that sound like they should all be the same thing. And it it sounds so easy to have a couple of policies, but (laughs) oh my God, it's not. Excellent. Are you finding anything wrong with them? With the policies? Yeah. Or like with our business practices? No. Mostly what it is, is these policies, the templates that we're working from are meant to be sort of universal. Like they could apply to any company, but, you know, we don't have a chief information security officer and you know like there's like five or six positions that i'm just going i'm think as i'm reading this i'm like okay well we have an acting ciso you know that'll be somebody on the team right like we do all of these things but it's we don't have a formalized process around disaster recovery yet and we don't have uh you know formalized incident response plan we just kind of like okay something's going on so let's jump on video chat and figure it out. You know, we're a team of technically still five people. We have our sixth starting in another week or two. So yeah, we're just, it's the the language in these policies is just very enterprisey, and it's hard mm-hmm. to decide whether I need to like dumb down the language to fit our current business size, or if we just kind of accept it as is and go, yeah, you know, our CTO is also our CISO is also this and is also <laughs> that. They're all the same person. And, and I don't know. And like, you know, we're still... So small, we don't have a board of directors and there's like certain things that it like references, you know, reporting certain things to your board of directors. And I'm like, no, I'll just cut that sentence. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to report to someone. So you really can't cut the sentence. I report to the mirror. Okay. No, no. I mean, it's it's like, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, right? The sentence that I was thinking about was like the, I guess it's the CISO, the chief information security officer is supposed to report some information about how, like what the plan is and how well we're doing at adhering to our security policies and what the remediation plans would be if we found something that was out of compliance. And so, you know, we just kind of absorb that into ourselves. Makes sense. It's like, yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the point of that sentence is about transparency, right? The yeah. plan isn't just, we'll deal with it. There has to be an mm-hmm. actual plan. Yeah, you need to communicate what's going on. Yeah. Right. And and so, 
every company, what the actual policy is and actually what you do is there's always some divergence there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just have to find language that's going to make sense for our business that, you know, we can, what's the word? Plausible deniability, right? You know, like (laughs) we could theoretically make all of this work to the letter, even though we probably won't. So. (laughs) <laughs> uh, unless you're the business unless you're like you know uh, uh, our auditor listening and then in which case we're going to <laughs> no, I was on a call the other day at work and I don't even remember what the context was but someone started saying something that had like a sensitive nature to it and I was like I was like shh, shh don't stop talking stop talking I'm like I don't know what you're talking about but I don't want to know I want to be able to deny <laughs> that I heard any of this <laughs> yep Steve does this thing where when he talks about anything at work, no no matter how silly it is, he takes his phone and turns it upside down and takes my phone and like sticks it in his pocket or something and then whispers in my ear like it's some big giant (laughs) secret. But in reality, it's nothing at all. It's like so-and-so wasn't at work today. And I'm like, you had to hide all of our phones to say that. And he's like, you never know who's listening. (laughs) He's right, unfortunately. (laughs) And if anybody would know, it would be the military. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, that's enough jibber jabber out of me. How about you, Ben? I'm going to go with a triumph. And that is that I wrote a data migration script today at work that has to delete about 22 million records from the database, which mm-hmm. uh, deleting data from the database is just a terrifying, terrifying thing, especially when it's not based on existing application code. It's something that, that you have to hand write. But I was looking at our application logic and there's this part of the application where a record gets generated and then right after a very slightly different record gets generated. And there's a note that says, oh, by the way, we should probably not generate this in most cases. And I did a git blame <laughs> on that. And that's that was added seven years ago. <laughs> nice. So I was like, oh, that doesn't seem right. So I looked at the database and I ran a query to see roughly how many there were of that second type that, that didn't need to be there in most cases. And it was about 50% of the records in that table, which has about 50 million records in it. And I just, I, I, I couldn't abide. I couldn't let it mm-hmm. be there. So I, I, I wrote a migration script that essentially walks over the table and is looking for there's certain conditions. I can't just like blanket delete 20 million records at a time. First of all, the database probably lock up in production. We don't Quit. want that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I wrote a migration script that, that uh, gets stored, like the place, it has a, a record in the database where it stores its offset and it kind of loops over a thousand records at a time looking for specific conditions and then deletes them. And, it, and it's terrifying, but the triumph is that I did it and I pulled the trigger and so far nothing's exploded. And uh, so that's so a bit of a relief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No one's complained yet. I'm banking on the fact that, you know, there's always a database backup somewhere. Should something go foul? But uh, I'll also throw in kind of a sub triumph, which is that I almost sort of wrote something that looked like a test, what? which is, yeah, I, uh, settle down, settle down. So <laughs> I, uh, baby steps, I, I had to delete this special type of record inside of this table. So I, I had a test file. I mean, I say test very liberally, liber, liber, liberally, <laughs> <laughs> basically I had a, a dot SQL file that inserted a number of good records, quote unquote, good records, and a number of quote unquote, bad records. And then I ran that and then I did the thing in the UI that, that like should have demonstrated whether or not that code was there and only the good records still existed. So, but then, you know, of course, once I was done, I deleted all of that mumbo jumbo. You don't need to commit stuff like that, but I felt good. I felt good. It was like, it was terrifying up until the moment I hit run in production. Then I just sort of felt better about it. So 
I feel good. But is it moving the data to somewhere else no. before it deletes it? No. No, it is not. It's just deleting it? Just deleting it. It's gone bye-bye. Well, you got all your old backups. Yeah. That, 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 so it's a very edge casey kind of a thing. And we actually track how often this particular type of record gets accessed. Like when you render the view on the on, in the app, we then store another record that says, hey, this person viewed this thing. It's a very specific type of thing. It's not like we do that for everything. And so I spot checked the, the database. And for like 2 million records of that type, only something like 300 of them had ever been viewed. So it's, it's mm. like literally we're, we're generating a bunch of data that, that's not even accessible in the application. So it just, and we are, we're actually ending up filtering that data out in a number of places. So once I actually clean this data up, I can go back and remove all the places where it's getting filtered out unnecessarily. So it's just going to lead to faster access on that table and just more peace of mind, I think, on my end. Mm. So yeah, Triumph. Nice. Tim, what about you? I also got a Triumph. So I simplified an existing feature that, and it's greatly reducing like resource usage. So uh, of course, you know, in the financial world, we, we take a payment and they were typically posting information about that, the success of that payment to, you know, some sort of system of record or accounting system or something. And the initial customer that I built this for in order to find out, it was a whole bunch of steps uh, and a bunch of lookups that got really resource intensive to try to figure out if that payment was applied. And so I, I have an audit routine that, that does that, it goes out and checks. And if it doesn't, you know, it, it either will automatically post the payment or contact a human, you know, put a note, note somewhere for a human being to take a look at it. And I don't know why I just sort of had a brain fart. I was for some newer systems that I've been talking to that it was so resource intensive that it was like bogging their system down. And I kept trying to hack it and just, you know, take incremental approaches to fixing it. And in some reason today, like middle of the day, I was, I was kind of done with most of my stuff. And I was like, oh, what am I going to work on? And I was started thinking about that. I'm like, oh, you idiot. These The newer systems, they actually have, we have a, a token that we give to represent the payment. This new one, they have the token and they store it. So all I got to do is just go, I have a list of all my tokens for the customer. All I got to do is I created a, an API endpoint that says, give me the token and I'll go see if it's in this table. And so I went from, you know, taking two to three seconds per lookup to like, I can do, I did like 3000 and, you know, less than one second. So, and it's, it's, so it's much more resource intensive and doesn't, you know, block the, the, the system of record. So I'm like, and I, so I'm just kicking myself. I'm like, why didn't I do this earlier? This is so much simpler. <laughs> I've got the data I need. I just need to know, did you take my token? Did you put it in your system? If it's there, the payment's there. So I can move on. So it was good to do that. And that only took probably an hour and a half today. Nice. So, to get that working tested and then move to production. So Good job. Yeah. How about you, Carol? I have neither. It's just, it's okay. Things are going along. Things are working. I have nothing amazing to report. I have nothing terrible to throw in there either. Like, everything's just going par. I don't know. Everything's okay. I guess that's a win in itself. It's just okay. Sure. Yeah. I guess instead of a gold star, you'll get a green circle sticker. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going. Good for go, I guess. Green for go. Yeah. So, that's me. <laughs> All right. Hey, nothing to ain't complain no, ain't about. Ain't no shame in that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, then uh, let's talk about things that are supposed to be easy that sound like they should be easy, but 
in actuality just are not. But it sounds so easy. <laughs> yeah. I, I was kind of joking when I was talking about vertically centering stuff. You know, that's kind of the the go-to joke, right? For it sounds easy, but it's not. Right. You know, there there's, I guess, a line middle is table. Is that a vertical centering? I guess it is. But that only works in tables, right? Yeah. TDs have a vertical line. Yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's just been this thing. And I, I, I say this because... I've had this trick that I've been using for the last several years or whatever, and, and it's been working great for me, which is, so say you want to align, vertically align a div inside of its container. So you do, what is it, position, relative, top 50%, and then you do a transform, translate Y minus 50%. And that mm-hmm. effectively vertically centers stuff. And that, so that's just been how I've done things forever. It's so easily readable. Yeah, I was gonna say. So there is there is like one really small quirk that the last time I checked still exists, which is that if the content height of the element is an odd number of pixels, as an even odd. Yeah, yeah. So let's say it's like five hundred and one pixels high. The negative fifty percent actually like shifts it to the half pixel, and and then certain things inside of that content become blurry. Oh, lovely. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's not even the bug that I was going to bring up. So, But the, I've been using this trick for years and years now. And I got a ticket today that something that I designed that's responsive wasn't looking quite right. And and the bug wasn't this, but I while I was trying to figure out that bug, I was like, okay, well, let me open this up in every browser and take a look at it. And it was looking great. The vertical centering part, at least, was looking great everywhere except freaking Safari. Um, and <laughs> somehow, for some reason, the the text was like basically bottom aligned in, in Safari on this thing. Weird. Yeah. And at what it came down to, so I was using that trick to vertically align a div within a, a block styled anchor tag, like a button, you know, with the, that's a href, whatever, but it's block styled. And we're using it as a button because in some cases, like it's a, think of like a row of buttons. In some cases, one of those buttons might have multiple lines of text. And so they won't all automatically aligned. And that, that row of buttons is in a display grid. So the buttons themselves will all grow to fit the height of that row of buttons. So they'll all be identical height. But then the text of one will be centered because it's got multiple rows of text. And it just it's setting the height for all of them. And then the rest are all not. And so I, I used my trick to vertically align the things and it looked great. And I thought it was great for a week or two. And then I got this bug report and what I ended up having to do, and I don't think you're supposed to have to do this, but to fix it in Safari as I added a height equals hundred percent to those grid items. Yeah. Which I think is like implied and it must just be some weird Safari bug, but that fixed it. I was like, of all the things. And there's, you know, there's other ways to do it too. Like we had somebody in Discord suggest a different, it was Mingo. And Mingo, give you credit, using a flex box, a similar flex box approach of aligning things. And oh, there's a cool flex box demo I love to do. It's like the Frogger one. I don't know if you guys have done mm-hmm. it or not. Or basically yeah, you play Frogger. Oh, it's so much fun. I hate, I hate design. I hate CSS. I hate styling anything. I am not a <laughs> pixel pusher. Everything you just rambled off, Adam, is something I would have expected to find when I'm searching. How do mm. you vertically align something? I'd be like in Stack Overflow going, someone please tell me how to make this work because I can't make it work. I, I don't do those yeah. things very well. 
I don't do them often enough. I just sit I there and either. hack, the, hack mm-hmm. the page until something moves. Like, okay, it yeah. moved. All right, I'm in the right spot. Let's so, play around now. The funniest part is I will have like my developer console open and I'll like inspect the element and I'm over like changing pixels to see what it does because I actually don't know what a lot of the tags do. So I'm like, what happens if this one is five more? Which way did it go? Because I'm like, this should go left. No, actually five more moved it right. And I'm like, I'm so confused, but okay. So then I start plugging that back into my code and refreshing. I'm like, let's just try it and see what it does. So the site you were talking about with the Frogger thing is flexboxfroggy.com. It's basically a Flexbox tutorial that you yes. learn by playing Frogger. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun and it's actually very educational. Flexbox has definitely become my go-to for a lot of things. Really? I, well, so here's the thing is for the longest time, we had to support IE11. And mm-hmm. IE11 actually has Flexbox support with some vendor-specific prefixes, I think. We use, at work, we use something called PostCSS, which is basically mm-hmm. a post-compilation step for our listeners here. So it'll do things like you'll compile your less CSS into regular CSS, and then PostCSS will apply vendor pre- prefixes to the, to the output. And you can get IE11 to basically support flexbox but they i don't think they have something like that for grid so what i think a lot of people reach for grid i have historically reached for flexbox because grid was not available yet yeah yeah flexbox came first and i tried really hard to learn it and i kind of it's like i can make it work but i for every single time that i have to use it i have to go dive back into the tutorials and oh okay yeah that's how you do that thing or that's what that property is called Every single time. And it's for like everything that I want to do, every little feature. Whereas Grid just feels more natural to me. It's easier to remember the parts. And so I, that's what I tend to reach for if I can. Yeah, I got to get into Grid because it seems like it's really powerful. And one of the things that's coming out soon is the, is it called Subgrid? Yeah, it's like sub-grid. different grids can then sort of share alignments. I don't quite know what the definition is. but it- I, I forget the exact thing, but if I'm going to try and, and maybe we'll have to error correction, but I believe it is so that like you can have a grid of items and then all of the items can then be like display grid and have like grids within grids. But the thing is that they all adhere to each other, right? They, they share the same vertical height of the rows and, and column That's widths. cool. It sounds cool. I hope you're right. I hope, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> One issue that I've run into with vertically centering is when you open a modal window in our application, you get a backdrop, you know, so, so like you have a, a gray-ish backdrop that's like 90% opacity. So most of the application behind it is not available. And then you have your mm-hmm. modal window above the backdrop and the modal window is vertically centered within the window, which is fine when the modal window is shorter than the browser window but then when the browser when when you have a lot of content in your modal window and it has to go all the way to the top aesthetically i don't want the top of the modal window to butt against the actual top of the browser so i want to build in like a 50 pixel margin on the top and the bottom but with flexbox and i don't i'm there's like weird things that you got to do so like in flexbox if you try to center that modal within the window and then the content of the modal gets larger than the browser, the scroll bars don't work. And you have to do this weird thing where it's it's like you don't center align it, but you said like all the margins are auto. And then one of them has like a min height. It's like min height somehow flips it into some special mode of rendering or something. I, I don't know. It's really 
some of it just makes no sense. It's like just some esoteric browser logic that you just have to do because that's how it works. Yep. See, it sounded easy. Sure wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whenever we're working on projects, we work with our design team and they send us over these like Figma designs of what they want the site to look like. And my very first project, I was like, yes, someone else is going to be designing this for me. This is going to be amazing. And then I find out like three, no, not joking, like three <laughs> meetings into it, three meetings into this, I found out they don't design it. They just decide what it looks like. And I have to make it look that way. And I was mm-hmm. like, do you guys know how much I don't like doing anything in the front? Like, this is not my thing, right? <laughs> so ultimately, he sends me back a whip and is like, hey, this really needs to move left, like just a tad. Like, And he zooms in. He's like, you can see that it, it's not exactly aligned with where our button is here. And I'm like, this button literally has nothing around it. It's just in a div that has inherited everything else, right? Like I've done nothing to this other than just laid it out in our normal flow. So because I got so frustrated with it, because in the meeting, I'm like, oh yeah, sure, that's fine. That's easy. Mm-hmm. No problem, right? I go pull up the code, do everything I can to make it work. Couldn't make it work. So ultimately, I put like a negative 45 pixel on it and shipped it out and was like, it's there where you want it. But I'll figure out later why, why it won't move any, like why it's not where it should be. So then I had to go back like two weeks later and fix it. But I'm like, I just, I don't get it. I don't do these things. So it sounds simple enough to just move something slightly left. And I'm like, it doesn't move. (laughs) What's worse is when you have, you know, it's the customer saying, hey, could you just move this over? And it's like two days later. Why haven't you moved? I mean, seriously, can't be that hard. I'm like, dude, you have no clue. Just get over <laughs> it. Enjoy. Enjoy. You have the button and it works. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Don't complain about its placement. Looks good on my machine. Yeah. Just don't change your font size or <laughs> yeah. zoom in or anything. I remember one time years and years and years ago at basically my first job out of college, I was working on a website for this law firm and it was literally New Year's Eve and I'm sitting in the office with the clients right behind me and we're co-designing their about page. And it, and it was that same kind of thing where it's, they're like, oh no, can you move two pixels to the left? And like this oh partner's God. face, two pixels to the right. And they're like, oh no, that doesn't look right. Can we go try and go back the other direction? And like, well, what if we put a border around it? And I'm like, yo, it's six o'clock on New Year's Eve. Why do you want to be here doing this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what, what homes do you not want to go to? <laughs> What's wrong with your marriage? So what else is easy-ish? Well, you know what should be easy, but is just ridiculously frustrating, especially like if you're coming at it new, if, new, if you've never done it before, using JavaScript in 2022, <laughs> like on a website, <laughs> right? You got like yeah. transpilers and bundling and you've got to choose between ES modules imports and, and common JS. And man, I like occasionally I entertain the idea of trying to teach my kids how to make websites. And <laughs> like I, I try, you know, I start with vanilla JS and all this stuff. Like I haven't, I haven't even brought them into like React or anything. It's just like, just... Here, let's make tic-tac-toe. And it's just so frustrating. I mean, I don't do bundling and things like that. I, I don't, I mean, I just used old school. It's like kind of, you know, import the library, you know, get it from a CDN or something. And then if you need to add some, put some custom 
JavaScript in there, just, you know, just put it on the page. I haven't really looked into, and I'm sure people are going to tell me, what is the advantage of, of, you know, doing these transcompilers and bundling and things like that? So how do you update your libraries then? Hmm? How do you update them? Like when a new version comes out or like a new release comes out for the library, how just do you update it? Whatever the latest CDN number is, just update it. <laughs> Tim's still using you just jQuery. manually go in and like have to go like type it in into all the files? Sure. Okay. Yeah. You've got one shared layout file that you imported in, right? Well, yeah, we don't we don't update it till it breaks. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I'm sure that's PCI compliant. Quick side quest here on jQuery. Super interesting. So I was listening to an episode, I think it was of CodePen Radio. And uh, they did this analysis of like the last, I don't know, however many years. Maybe it was just the last year of pens that were created. So code pens, for people who don't know what that is, it's basically like an online playground where you can build JavaScript, HTML, and CSS kind of demos and CodePen hosts them and they do all kinds of fancy stuff around bundling your JavaScript together, but making it so... It's, it's like really a social easy. network for web dev demos. Basically. Yeah, 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 good. That's a great explanation. So they, when you create a pen, uh, apparently you can choose what type of technologies get included. Like, do I want to do a React demo? or Is it going to use SVG? What kind of CSS? That kind of stuff. And they analyze the most popular technologies that get included in their pens. And they say, even to today, jQuery is the most popular technology that gets included in their pens. And that's people proactively saying, I want to pull this in. It's not like something that gets pulled in by default. And it was so fascinating because they were comparing it to say like the state of JavaScript surveys that I think Stack Overflow does. And they're saying like people talk about what they're really excited about and like what they want to use in their side projects. But when it comes down to it, jQuery is still super, super useful and powerful. And it is Mm -hmm. what a lot of people end up pulling in. It's just not the thing that they want to talk about. Yeah. jQuery is the, it's like like Batman's tool belt if you're still working on the legacy app, right? Like you can't. (laughs) You can't you just can't start over and build mm-hmm. everything from with React and, and Svelte and all these awesome things. I mean, you can, but it is much easier and thus more efficient and profitable to just mm-hmm. do it with jQuery. My favorite word is just, right? Like I've got, <laughs> I've kind of unintentionally, you know, without any effort trained my whole team to anytime anybody says just, we then repeat ourselves and we go just with air quotes, <laughs> right? Just add an index, just because it's such a, it's a trigger word, right? It's like when you say just, you are implying that it's an easy thing for somebody to do. And maybe it is easy for you, but it's not necessarily easy for everybody. Mm -hmm. Anybody can do it. Like just because it's easy for you doesn't mean it's easy for someone else. I mean, what sounds easy for you isn't easy for me. For sure. Yeah. So I never got an answer to my question. What, what does all that stuff buy you? Does that get you rather than just doing JavaScript? A better developer experience once you get the build pipeline put together. Like, so all these frameworks, the React, the Vue, Svelte, Angular, they kind of all stem from, there's going to be some some deviation from this, but in general, rule of thumb, they all stem from the idea of declarative state, like Vue state, where you define the data and then you render the view based on what the data is. And if you want to make a change to the view, you do that by changing the data on the page. And that causes the page to re-render, which is a much easier to reason about and debug way to build complex user interfaces. And now I will get down off of my marketing soapbox. Well, and bundling (laughs) enables a bunch of other things that you don't necessarily think about. So like you can use features of a language that are somewhat advanced and then they get compiled away. So like 
fat arrow syntax for functions. You know, it's supported everywhere now, but it wasn't supported everywhere. So you could write it like that. And then your compiler and your bundler would convert those to old school functions and, and this bindings and things like async await, I think still gets compiled down into generators. And, and then you can build all of your uh, applications in smaller files so that they're easier to reason about, like Adam's talking about. And then the bundler puts those all into one giant file or, or puts it into a giant file, but then splits that file up and, and does a code splitting like based on the routes that you are in your application. So for example, you might eagerly load the very early access parts of your application, but then lazy load a whole administrative bundle. And like no human can do that reasonably on their own. So they rely on all these bundler technologies to figure out how to split up the code and how to extract parts of it and how to inject other parts of it into, into other things. It, I mean, it's all magic to me. I don't, I don't really understand right. how it works. Yeah. Like, I guess it, another way of looking at it is like, if you have a million lines of JavaScript for your application, you don't want that to be manually split across 10 different files. Right. And even if you did that, you're still looking at 10 different hundred thousand line JavaScript files, which would suck. And so bundling allows you to organize that code well, right? I'm, I'm so used to the idea of bundling now that when people talk about living in a world where bundling doesn't have to take place, so, so there was HTTP 1, which is what we've all been living on for the last 30 years, and then HTTP 2 came along, and the idea, I think, with that is that it, essentially you reuse connections, so it becomes theoretically much cheaper to send a lot of separate files because they don't have to do all the DNS handshaking and HTTP handshaking and stuff. Again, I'm, it's not really my specialty here. Close enough. And now uh, uh, that like apparently didn't prove itself as well as people thought it would. So people continued to bundle. And now I think there's HTTP3 and, and browsers all support ES modules. I'm saying some words here that I don't fully understand, so forgive me. <laughs> so, so I'll listen to podcasts. People are like, "Oh yeah, we're going to be pretty soon living in a world where you just don't have to bundle. Like you can just build a site that has 200 separate files, and it's all going to be streamed through ES modules over HTTP three. And I'm just, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I feel like we tried that before. It doesn't feel like a uh, until I see it. It doesn't seem feasible. So yeah, my I don't know about everybody else. My introduction to bundling was a tool called Browserify, which would allow you to use common JS require statements. So like Node.js, if you're familiar with using require, you know, some other file or some node module, and it would pull in that code and it would you could treat it like it was defined in the same file. And then Browserify would allow you to that and many other things, but it would kind of combine all of that into one bundle based on a single entry point. And until embarrassingly recent, that was how <laughs> our JavaScript bundles were built. And yeah, I mean, like it, it worked and we had bigger, more important fish to fry. So we, we were living on Browserify and jQuery until probably at least 2020, if not later, which is yeah. crazy. What are you using now? So we switched out Browserify for a tool called ESBuild, which I've talked to before about on the podcast. It's it's built in, I think it's built in Go. There's there's sort of two that are competing. There's ESBuild and there's SWC. I believe SWC is written in Rust and ESBuild is written in Go. And they are just much faster languages, right? So tools like Babel and Webpack and other prior 
bundlers were written in JavaScript because they were written by JavaScript developers who just needed to get something done. So they used what they knew. And this is actually, this is something that Swix, when we had him on the show, was talking about, you know, how people are motivated enough now to learn other languages to get better performance in the third age of JavaScript. And we're using ES Build. There were a few features of Browserify. Browserify had a good plugin for handlebars templates, which we were using for doing some templating stuff. And it turned out, like when we went to switch to ES Build, that there was no way to do the same thing. And so I looked at what we were using templates for, and there was like maybe 10 or 12 places we were doing this, and the templates were so simple. I was like, it would be so easy for me to just write a function that concatenates strings together to do the same thing as the template. I'm just going to do that. And so I did. And that made it possible for us to switch CS build, and life has been so much better ever since. Cool. And we, I, don't, I don't think we have a million lines of JavaScript, but we have quite a lot. And, and it's kind of built on you know, legacy app style. Bundlers are very magical and magical to the point where it's like if if you're swimming with the stream, they're amazing. And then it seems like the second you need to swim upstream a little bit, it's like you really have to know what you're doing or it's just not possible sometimes. I remember I started playing around with a bundler called Parcel, Parcel.js, mm-hmm. which is really cool because the way it works is you you sort of just build the site the way you'd want to do it if you didn't have a bundler. So you have your index file and your index file calls a main file and then the main file imports a bunch of other files, that kind of stuff. And then you just point parcel at the index file, like their index HTML, and it parses it and it figures out all the references and then it pulls those things and bundles them together. And I'm like, oh, this is so amazing and it's so fast, but it works with an HTML file. So I'm thinking to myself, can I use parcel to build a library that gets pulled into a CFML, a cold fusion template. And I was posting on the issues and people were just like, no, that's just not how it works. You're like, it has to, <laughs> you have to point it at an index file or you have to point it at a JavaScript file, but then you'd have to pull it in through like a whole different step where you, you create a hashed file name and then you have to know where to pull that into your cold fusion. It's like, you know, you just start swimming upstream and, and the, the training wheels come off really fast. Yeah, it's a JavaScript. That sounds easy. Should be easy. So what else sounds easy? Logging. Logging sounds easy, right? You just, you know, we got a tag for just it. Log you know, it. Just log it. Just use log4j. Yeah, just CF log or whatever, right? <laughs> I hear that's super safe. Don't use that if you're listening and you actually listen to Adam's recommendations. Don't use it. Just just use the latest version. Yeah. Yeah. Make, make sure you've updated it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds easy, right? You just, you know, it automatically creates a log file for you. You just dump some text to it or maybe some, you know, some JSON. But uh, yeah, but you know, you're running on, uh, you have multiple services on multiple instances and now they're all local. And so now you got to get, now you got to, you know, have a logging service that aggregates that across all your, all your services. So yeah, I just, I just find, and then if you, if you don't do that, then it's like, well, now you got to go physically log into the machine, <laughs> go look at the file on the machine. It's easy to do that, that one little log statement. But, you know, if you don't have a whole ecosystem to handle that across multiple machines and it's, it's not as easy as you think that data is being collected, but it's pretty it's not even available to you. Yeah. Or if the data being collected isn't helpful, like just an error and maybe a point in time or a file like where this is happening at isn't super helpful if you don't understand the context of it. So yeah. like we're pretty good about making sure that all of ours have pretty healthy messages in it. 
so you know what's going on. So even though the user never sees those messages, when I'm looking through the, the logs, I actually can find what was going on. I'm not just guessing at what what, what the user was doing when this happened or what yeah. the system was doing. Sometimes it's not user-generated. Yeah, it's, I, I find when I first create a new project, I tend to overlog, thinking I'm going to need all this stuff. <laughs> and then it'll be about a year later, and I realize I haven't looked at most of these log files that I'm generating, maybe there's one that's been interesting. <laughs> so I'm going through the code and just delete all those lines, get rid of the logs because I'm not having to debug as often as I think. And a lot of times the places that have been problems, there was no logging because I didn't yeah. predict that there would be problems there. <laughs> I so. can tell you officially, I'm sure that you have a retention policy on all this data that you're creating. <laughs> yes, the, the, the policy is I keep it till I don't want it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of logging, actually, that reminded me of this thing that I wish all programming languages had, which is like just the idea of a debug context that like, so like as you're writing the code, you can just kind of think in your head, okay, if an error were to be thrown while I'm trying to do this thing, just show me like these variables, right? Like you don't want every variable that's been set throughout mm -hmm. the request, but you want, you know, this thing would be useful to know, this thing would be useful to know. And it like automatically would reset with every request and, or you could tell it, okay, flush that and, and I'm done with that operation and I'm getting ready to start another operation. So if that was all successful, then clean that out and start a new one. And then anytime an error is thrown, you could have it automatically include that debug context with the error information that you're logging, right? Man, I've done that so many times now as like a custom built solution. There's got to be a better way. I feel like it, it feels like something that should belong to the language. Agree. Completely agree. In, in our application, when a request comes into the framework, like one of the very first lines that I have is I take the user ID, if it exists on the session, and I stick it in the request scope. And for people who aren't familiar with ColdFusion, ColdFusion has scopes. The request scope, I guess, is kind of like, like a thread context in Java, maybe, where you can access that request scope anywhere in the request. So I store the user ID at the very top. And anytime I have to log something later, I check to see if it's in the request scope for exactly that reason to see if I can get as much contextual information as possible. Yep, we do the same thing, exact same thing. Yeah, it's like a it's a global scope, but it's specific to that particular request. Yeah, so it's not shared. So at work, we are on Kubernetes, and I'm about to say a bunch of stuff that I don't really understand. But <laughs> prior to Kubernetes, we were logging everything to log files like dot log files on the server like cold fusion would do that automatically for you when you when you do a cf log or a log write but once we got into the world of kubernetes my understanding is that the way kubernetes works is you just write to the standard output of the machine and kubernetes essentially slurps all of that into a centralized location and then there's some sort of log aggregator that pushes that data somewhere and i was like oh this is so amazing like it's so much easier to just write to the output instead of worrying about separate log files because you never run out of space and you don't have to rotate anything. But then at some point you realize that everything writes to the standard out, including like when you start Cold Fusion and Tomcat is starting up and it's loading everything and it's just like barfing, you know, line after line of not structured data. It's just like I loaded mm -hmm. this properties file and then that properties file and this properties file doesn't exist and I pulled this out of the environment and yada, 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 yada. And right now, when we do a deployment at work, we generate over a gigabyte of log data that's literally just Tomcat and Nginx and Lucy starting up. And I have no idea how to get rid of that. It's, it's like you actually need that's someone huge. who knows about Java. 
and I do not know about Java. I wish I could help you, buddy. Yeah. If I didn't deploy, the application produces very few logs, but the fact that I deploy fairly often, I'm producing like gigabytes and gigabytes of log data a day, which you're like, whatever, it's just text. But where we log, we have a quota and we're always going over our quota for how much you can log per day. And essentially, if you go over your quota, they just stop indexing your, your data. So all of oh, a sudden, no. like, your what? logs would just That's be awful. dark. For like four hours, there'll be no data in your logs. So along with that idea of everything writing to standard out, that's kind of the default behavior for Node.js. So if you write like console.log in a Node script, it goes to the standard out. And you can do console.error, and I believe it goes to the standard error. Either way. And, and so like that's kind of the CF dump of the Node world, right? You just console.log <laughs> stuff, and it shows up there. Or, I mean, even in the browser, right? You do console.log, and it shows up down in the browser console. And that's great until it gets taken away from you. There, so I love using Next.js, but I get so angry when I'm trying to debug something and I just, it's like, just give me console log and they, yeah. it, it goes nowhere. You cannot console <laughs> log. You can't do it in the browser. You can't do it on the server side. It just goes nowhere. And it's infuriating. Oh, I would be furious. I'd be furious. I don't think I could use it. I'd be like, new language. No, can't do it. Yeah. I have such a love-hate relationship with React. Love hate's not the right. It's more like love indifference or no hate indifference, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. That's not, <laughs> that's not uh, the Ben I know. So at, at work on the legacy platform, somebody added React years ago. I'm very unhappy about that, but whatever. And they built the whole compilation step for all the React, the JSX. So, you know, it gets like we're talking about, it all gets bundled down to a normal JavaScript file. And mm -hmm. for whatever type of configuration choices they made, and I have no idea where these are, it will strip out any debugger statements and any console log statements. So I can't tell you how many hours I've wasted trying to put console log into the React code to debug something and then having to compile it and then having no idea why it's not outputting anything. Thinking like, oh, I must be in the wrong code. And then like literally hours will go by and I'm pounding my head. And, and I'm like, oh, you know what? Now I remember. Last time I went through this, I realized that they were all just getting stripped out. So I feel your pain. Yep, logging sounds easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> sort of, sort of along the same lines, we do a lot of data auditing. So we we have a, a one word chant in our in our sort of team back channel when customers are being difficult, and the, the chant is just receipts, 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 <laughs> because you know. Customers will say the system's not working or, or, you know, whatever. And we can, when we can go back and look through our audit logs and say, actually, the data that you're looking for is not there because so-and-so deleted it on such mm -hmm. and such time at such and such update. And, and this was the browser they were using. Here was their IP address and, you know, all these things. You, it really has come in so useful for us that it's like everything. We, we need receipts. And I wish it was easier to log atomic changes to database records, right? So it would be so nice if there was just some way to like automatically get, you know, you do an update statement and it sends you back like, okay, here are the columns that changed. And this mm. was the before and after. That would be so nice. It would create a ton of data, but mm. like that would be so useful. Why does no database do that? <laughs> yeah. If you want to do stuff like that, you got to create triggers for, for updates and all that stuff. It and gets, then you got to keep hinky. it in line. Yeah. Every time you yeah. add a new column, you have to go update the trigger. Yeah. At work, they've been talking about, I don't know if it's a technology or just a concept, but they, they talk about something called change data capture. Maybe It might be an Amazon 
feature with RDS where I think you can set up whatever change data capture is and it will, it's, it's like a callback and it will tell you here was the structure of the row before something happened and here's the new structure of the row. I, you, I don't think it gives you information about like which user did it. So that's sort of problematic for, for your particular situation, but. I'm just going to throw a, it out okay, there. Okay, so I'm on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I'm going to, I'll save this and I'll read it later, but it says it's a software design pattern. So yeah, this is not specific to any one product. So I think Amazon has something that implements change data capture, but that's as, that's as mm. much as I'll say, because that's as much well, as we're I on know. Amazon. Sweet. I'll look into that. Thank you. Maybe you yeah. just made my life a little bit better. <laughs> Who knows? So I have another database related item, which is storing whether or not a user has seen a particular piece of information. And so you can imagine that, let's say that you're doing something online and you perform an action and you want everyone else to be notified. So the next person who logs in, maybe they see a little bar at the top that says like, oh, Adam invited you to this thing, you know, and you can dismiss it, kind of a, kind of an inf- piece of information. And storing whether or not I've seen Adam's notification seems like one of those mm-hmm. things that should just be super simple. It's like a flag you just set somewhere and then that flag either gets created when I see it or deleted when I see it. But what I have found maintaining the same application for the last decade is that a lot of users just never come back to the application. And and now you have these like hundreds of millions of notification flags just sitting there forever. And you're like, can I delete these? Like, what happens if someone comes back in seven years? Do they need to know about that notification that Adam made seven years ago? Like, now do I have to get Adam left involved? a thumbs up emoji on your? Yeah, it's like you, you even just like like are there legal implications on? Do I have to have a data retention policy? Can I delete a notification like this if a user hasn't logged in after a certain period of time? And and the the whatever data structure you're using to store this information just continues to grow and grow and grow over time. And it seems like, again, you just like, oh, the user clicks something and I, and I just, you know, acknowledge it. But, but I, I, to this day, I don't know what the right approach to that is. And there's so many little things that could go like, and this and this and this all sort of in there too. Have you seen, this was years ago, but there, there was a diagram that went around like on Twitter of the like the logic workflow that Slack uses for notifications because you can that. get it in your you can get it in the app on your desktop you can get it on your phone you can get email notifications there's probably other things too and they batch them too right you can say okay email me once a day with my notifications if i haven't already seen them so how do they like you know uh, and, and then i guess if you if you get the email then they take it out of your the list of notifications that'll show you the next time you log into the app and it's so complicated. And if you if you see it, if, if you are idle in the application, then it'll start sending notifications to your phone. But then uh, they, I guess in those cases, they stop sending it to the application as well. And it's just like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's funny you say I, that because when I, if, so I'm on Slack at work and if I have to get up and go do something, I make a note in my head to, unfocus the Slack app, like go back to my code editor, mm. specifically so that it'll start sending notifications to my phone when I step away. 
Mm-hmm. I do the opposite. I make sure it's in focus because I'm like, do not notify me. I'm walking the dog. <laughs> if it can't wait eight minutes, then someone should probably call someone above me because I'm I might not be able to help you anyways. So, yeah, Carol, I'm like, are, don't. Are you no, saying I, I have like, unhealthy boundaries? <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little. I mean, you're going to pee with your phone and you want Slack messages in there, so. Might be a little unhealthy. <laughs> this is the same guy who won't answer his text messages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird balance. I actually one time dropped my phone in the toilet because I was standing there peeing and I was I was like, <laughs> what if I have unread messages? So I tried to reach into my pocket while I was peeing and I didn't. <laughs> it didn't work oh, out so man. well. Not for the phone. Should have learned your lesson. Yeah. They can wait. It's just a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. So that sounds easy, <laughs> but it's not. Okay, so uh, before we step away to do our after show, let's uh, tease what we're going to talk about tonight. So anybody want to take credit for these uh, bullet list items here? Yeah, we're going to talk about a dinosaur stampede. Classic. That, Ooh. You know, as as you do, as those things happen. <laughs> as you do. Got to watch out for those dinosaur stamp- yeah, stampedes. And, and so as we're recording this, it's a Thursday evening and night water jumps are in two days. I know I mentioned it last week too, but they're two days in. And so, yeah, my my it's a little puckered right now. <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit as more about that. As it will be in a, in a few weeks when you eat all those hot wings. Oh my God, yeah. All right. All right. So this episode of Working Code was brought to you by reading your phone notifications while you pee. And, <laughs> and listeners like you. If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. So special thanks to our top patrons, Monty, Gavin, and Sean. You guys rock. If you want to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. Again, this week, and maybe we'll just do the same homework every week until we get there. Your, Your homework is to... Leave us a question for our 100th episode AMA. You can find the link at uh, workingcode.dev. There's a banner, big, ugly red and yellow banner at the top of the page there. That'll take you right to it. Or AKA MySpace. (laughs) It does. Looks all too familiar on MySpace there. As usual, you can send us your topics and questions on Twitter or Instagram at workingcodepod. You can join our Discord at workingcode.dev slash Discord. You can send us an email with either text or your voice. A voice recording from your phone would be great. And we'll play it on the show. You can send that also to workingcodepod at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters, even if you can't center something to save your life. (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> What's going on there, Carol? Sorry, it's super hot in the office and I couldn't figure out why. I'm like pouring sweat and I just looked at the Nest thermostat and it's 79 degrees in here. No, Apparently, I got cold one day and closed the vent. So there's no air circulating in here anymore. <laughs> so I was like, hey, babe, can you come open the air vent for me? <laughs> I need somebody tall. Sorry, he's 6'3". That's okay. So you can reach it. Uh-